Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. Happy holidays. We're here to bring you a very black Christmas. <laughs> uh, I have been looking forward to talking about this movie quite a bit. I have mentioned on past episodes that uh, the three subgenres of horror that I like the most are zombies, anthologies and holiday horror movies and you know this really fits into the holiday horror subgenre obviously but a really close fourth is slashers and Mm -hmm. um yeah i was just ready ready to talk about this in fact we were supposed to cover another movie this december uh yeah we were gonna cover gremlins i believe Yep, but we uh, took that off the docket and added this one in, and I'm super glad we did, because every chance I get to watch this movie and talk about it, I'm super, super happy. And I was so super pleased, uh, having just now seen it, to see all of the connections with a lot of other things that I've seen, not just like Halloween and Psycho, you know, but also things like Student Bodies, which we covered last April. Oh, yeah. There's some definite, definite connections to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't remember, uh, Student Bodies is a, you know, sort of like spoof on slasher movies. And we covered that for April Fool's Day back in April. And um, yeah, they, they even pull like certain names of callers into that movie, right? Did they call it the Moner? Oh, there's yeah. a lot. Just like the showing of the house and like the zooming in on the locks. You know, and then the, the the of course the unicorn and the ho- and then making it into like the horse head book head, bookend, right? Uh huh. Yes. So I was just I was like marveling at that the whole whole way through, and of course, you know, I, I wasn't surprised, but I was just very very pleased to see it. So Black Christmas is a 1974 Canadian slasher film produced and directed by Bob Clark and written by A. Roy Moore, stars Olivia Hussey. Is it Hussey or is it Hussey? I mean, I've heard it each way. Like, I grew up saying hussy, but, <laughs> you know, like, I've I've heard other other people say hussy, so I don't know. You know what? For all intents and purposes, I want to say what comes naturally to me, and that's hussy. We're going to call her <laughs> Olivia Hussey. So Olivia Hussey, Kier Delea, Margot Kidder, Andrea Martin, Marion Waldman, and John Saxon. The story concerns a group of sorority sisters who receive threatening phone calls and are eventually stalked and murdered by a deranged killer during the Christmas season. The story is inspired by the urban legend The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs, as well as a series of murders that actually took place in Westmount section of Montreal, kind of where, you know, this was filmed. Now, of course, the urban legend of uh, The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs, if you haven't heard it, is, of course, where the babysitter is uh, alone in the house and the kids are already put to bed, but she keeps getting these phone calls. You know, have you checked the children? You know? And uh, and finding out that the call is coming from inside the house after she calls 911 or the operator, depending on the flavor of the urban legend that you've heard. It can end in several ways with the babysitter and the children getting killed, with everyone surviving and the, you know, the guy either escaping or getting caught. You know, it, there's a lot of different versions. So, yeah, that urban legend like scares the shit out of me anyway. Every time that I read it when I was a kid and, you know, I've, I've mentioned when a stranger calls on the podcast before, like it just like it terrifies me so so much and um i um i think like phone calls in general are creepy you know i think we'll probably talk about that later on in the episode um uh and you mentioned that this was sort of loosely based on a series of real life murders in montreal we talk about that a little bit in the episode too but uh moore wrote the screenplay under the title stop me It was later changed as filmmakers made many changes throughout the filming, such as shifting the setting of the story to a university rather than concerning high school students, right? And so I think that was a a good choice on their part. Yeah, one of the things that Bob Clark was so concerned with, as well as, um, you know, the author, was... The, the depiction at the time of, of students, whether they're high school or university, as basically just really stupid, you know, insipid people. And he really felt strongly that they were solid thinking individuals. And they're really portrayed such here, you know? Um, yeah. And I don't know that 
that was really taken forward consistently, uh, you know, along this uh, line of schlassics. Uh, it just depends on, on you know, which which movie you're looking at. But I think a little bit of it did, especially with the, the trope of the studious brunette, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, I mean, I think we have a lot to talk about as far as Black Christmas goes. But uh, before we go any further, this is Black Christmas. Silent night, evil night. During a Christmas party at a sorority house, an unseen and disoriented man watches the goings-on through the windows, climbs up a trellis, and gains entrance to the attic. Downstairs, the phone rings, and one of the girls, Jess, played by Olivia Hussey, answers. I mean... I, and also, don't you just love the way she answers the phone every single time? Hello? Right? Hello? 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 What? Oh, Barb, it's your mom. You know? Just like, every time. On the other end is a seemingly mentally unstable man who is implied to call the house regularly. She calls her sisters into the room to listen to the increasingly more obscene phone call. They stand around and listen in horror until oft-drunk Barb, played by Margot Kidder, grabs the phone to taunt the caller back. Unhappy with Barb's slings, the caller promises to kill her. When the call ends, Barb has a heated moment with another sister, Claire Harrison, who thinks that the caller might be some sort of serial rapist. After Barb chides Claire's prudish and virginal behavior, Claire heads upstairs to pack for her travel over the holiday season. Meanwhile, house mother Mrs. Mack, played by Marion Waldman, returns home and the girls present her with a gift of a hideous nightgown. Mrs. Mack, Barb's apparent rival for house alcoholic, escapes the commotion to sip from several strategically hidden bottles of sherry. Back upstairs, Claire hears noises coming from her closet. She assumes it's Mrs. Mack's perpetually lost cat, Claude. She goes to investigate, but it's the intruder. Who is that? Who is that? Who is that? Who are you? Yeah. Who's there? Who's there? As she walks even closer to the fucking bag. My God. He suffocates her with a plastic bag and moves her body to the attic. The following day, Mr. Harrison, Claire's father, is waiting on campus to meet his daughter, but she's very late. He makes his way to the sorority house, where Mrs. Mack is surprised by Claire's absence. Jess has gone to visit her boyfriend, piano student Peter, played by Keir Delea, across campus. During their discussion, Jess tells Peter that she is pregnant. While he is delighted with the news, Jess informs him that she intends to have an abortion. Upset by this, Peter tells Jess that he will come and visit her that night and discuss further. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't have that abortion. <laughs> yeah it's the same guy from 2001 and space odyssey i couldn't help myself i was myself. gonna say yeah, she's she's doing just fine after that right <laughs> daisy <laughs> daisy <laughs> now very fearful for his daughter mr harrison accompanied by barb and phyllis played by andrea martin goes to the police station to report claire is missing the police assure him that his daughter probably just ran off with a boyfriend while they are at the station, a frantic mother is reporting the disappearance of her own high school-aged daughter earlier that day while walking home from school. Jess finds Claire's boyfriend, Chris, and they return to the station to disprove their theories. They learn of the young girl's disappearance. Back at the sorority house, a drunken Barb has an outburst where she accuses all the housemates of blaming her for Claire. She is chided and sent to bed by an angry Phyllis, who, along with Mr. Harrison, Chris, and Jess, go to a local park to search for the missing women. 
Mrs. Mack prepares to leave for her sister's home, and here's what she thinks is the lost cat. It's always the damn cat. She traces the sound to the attic. She discovers Claire's body with plastic still around her face, but the intruder is behind her with a crane hook, which she throws into her head, killing her. Jess leaves the park early to meet Peter, but back at home she receives yet another obscene phone call. She decides to file her police report, only to be startled by Peter coming down the stairs behind her. He says that he was napping because he got tired of waiting for her. While on the phone with the police, Jess learns that the body of the missing girl was found in the park. Peter attempts to persuade Jess into marrying him and keeping their baby, but he is rebuffed. He leaves in a huff as Phyllis and Police Lieutenant Fuller, played by John Saxon, arrives to bug their phone. A group of carolers arrive, distracting Jess, and the intruder enters Barb's room and murders her with a crystal unicorn figurine. Jess gets another disturbing phone call, and this time the caller quotes the argument between Jess and Peter earlier that evening. The call was not long enough to trace, but Lieutenant Fuller theorizes that the killer may be Peter due to his mental fragility from Jess's news. She disputes this. Jess and Phyllis go throughout the house to lock all the doors and windows, but Phyllis is murdered in Barb's room. Downstairs, Jess gets yet another phone call in which the caller alludes to some transgression between two children named Billy and Agnes. This call is long enough to be traced, and the police call Jess and instruct her to leave the house immediately because the calls are coming from a second line upstairs. Fearful for her friends, Jess arms herself with a fireplace poker and ventures upstairs. She finds the bodies of Barb and Phyllis and spots the killer looking at her through the doorframe. Jess flees, but the killer gives chase. Jess barricades herself in the basement, only to spot Peter outside the basement windows looking for her. He smashes the glass to get to her, but she bludgeons him with the poker, assuming that he is the killer. When the police arrive moments later, they discover her barely conscious, with Peter's bloody body on top of her. They put her to bed and discuss the murders, unaware that Claire and Mrs. Mack's bodies are still up in the attic. Mr. Harrison goes into shock, and everyone rushes him to the hospital, leaving Jess alone in the house once again. As Jess sleeps, the killer climbs down from the attic. The house's telephone begins to ring, leaving Jess's fate unknown as the credits roll. The end. Man, Margot Kidder is like so good in this movie. It's like the original Justice for Barb. <laughs> oh my God, you're right. <laughs> We should have, like, rebranded that shit as soon as Stranger Things came out, right? <laughs> Justice like, for the real Barb, thank you. <laughs> Justice for Barb, again, is what you mean to say. <laughs> she really is. I kept wanting her to pop out, you know. <laughs> so, is Margot, is she... <laughs> Dislodge the unicorn horn from her chest and, really like, go ham on the guy? Is Margot Kidder Canadian or American? I didn't even bother to look this She's up. She's dead. Okay, was Margot Kidder Canadian <laughs> or American? <laughs> I know she- I, I'm not sure. All I know is she was Lois Lane. Yeah, I don't know, because I would call her a national treasure, but I'm not quite sure which nation I would have to belong to to say that. <laughs> so. I always confuse her with the actress that was in uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Kate Ark. Kate Capshaw? Oh, no. <laughs> oh my God, no. That's the Temple of Doom, right? Wait, I thought yeah. that was Margot Kidder. No. Karen Allen. Karen Allen. Yes. Okay. You're, they do look incredibly similar, right? They do. Yeah. She was in Starman and Scrooge. Yes. I do like Karen Allen, too. I also like Margot Kidder. So, I mean, like, maybe it's just like the look of the face, right? Yeah. So, Black Christmas was released in Toronto on October 11th, 1974. In America, it was released during the holiday season on December the 20th, 1974. Warner Brothers uh, changed the title of the movie to Silent Night, Evil Night, because they thought the original Canadian title of Black Christmas would confuse American audiences into thinking it was a exploitation movie. But after that initial release, Black Christmas returned as the title. I wonder if Silent Night, Evil Night was an effort to cash in on whatever notoriety Silent Night, Bloody Night had, which was released just one year prior to that. I mean, it's possible, you know, I think that um, by 1974, I think there were some, you know, holiday horror-esque things coming out. Mm -hmm. And um, you always want to continue that sort of like popular 
stuff with something similar, right? It's what we see in movies time and time again. It just seems like one year apart. That seems so close. I wonder if there was going to be like a lawsuit involved or something. Who knows? Well, and then just, you know, like five or six years later, there was, uh, no, probably like 10 years later, actually, there was Silent Night, Deadly Night. So completely different movie. Mm, almost equally as good. <laughs> <laughs> in October 1975, Black Christmas screened in New York and Chicago, as well as 19 theaters in LA, and earned considerable ticket sales. So much so that Warner decided to release the film nationally in time for Halloween, but ticket sales dwindled, and by following Christmas, it was pulled. When released in the UK, the BBFC removed the word cunt, as well as other sexual references during the first obscene phone call. Ultimately, Black Christmas grossed over $4 million internationally, managing to earn more than its budget of 620000 You know, I, I cuss a lot. And listeners, I'm not sure if you've like realized that yet, but I really fucking cuss a lot. But I can't, I can barely bring myself to use the word cunt. Right. Like I even saying it now makes me want to take a sip of my beer to like get the taste out of my mouth. <laughs> but I know I mean, I, I know some British people and they use the word cut all the time. So, I mean, same with Australian. It seems like a weird move for them to remove that word from the movie. But I mean, of course, we use the word know. bloody all the time and that's much worse there than it is here. Uh, Black Christmas has a 90 90. So, Black Christmas has a 16. I was projecting. I was like, you wish. <laughs> Black Christmas has a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 75%. The consensus reads, the rare slasher with enough intelligence to wind up the tension between bloody outbursts, Black Christmas offers fiendishly enjoyable holiday viewing for genre fans. And during its initial release, the film received mixed reviews, though. Uh, the New York Times called it a whodunit that raises the question as to why it was made. Uh, Gene oh, Siskel <laughs> gave it 1.5 <laughs> stars and called it a routine shocker that is notable only for indicating the kind of junk roles that talented actresses are forced to play in the movies. Kevin Thomas from the LA Times wrote, Before it maddeningly overreaches in a gratuitously evasive ending, Black Christmas is a smart, stylish, Canadian-made little horror picture that is completely diverting. It may well be that its makers simply couldn't figure out how to end it. Stylish Canadian-made little horror film, right? Well, it's a little patronizing. <laughs> Although I do like his gratuitously evasive ending. That was nice. I did like that. Um, it received a few accolades and award nominations and wins. Uh, it was nominated for the Best Horror Film for the Saturn Awards in 1974. The Canadian Film Awards, um, it, uh, it won Best Sound Editing and won Best Performance by a Lead Actress for Margot Kidder and was nominated for Best Feature Film. So, I mean, like, look at Canada in 1974 nominating a horror movie for Best Feature Film for its country. I mean, yeah. Either I mean, the, I don't know what the state of Canadian films were back then. Maybe there's only two made that year. I but, mean, that's what know. I was going to say. I was like, either there were like very few movies, or this like this people really latched onto it in Canada yeah. or whatever. But how patronizing was that? <laughs> um, it was also nominated for best motion picture by the Edgar Allan Poe Awards, which I have never heard of, and I don't think we've ever talked about on this podcast. So. I would have thought that would have been a, a like a writing award. I would think but. so too. You know, I don't. I mean, but hey, there it is. It's also been featured on a bunch of lists, including Bravo's Scariest Movie Moments at number 87, IndieWire's 100 Best Horror Movies at 67, Thrillist's 75 Best Horror Films at number 48, Esquire's 50 Best Horror Films at number 23. So before we just dive into Black Christmas as a whole, I think that it would behoove us to talk for a minute about sort of the history of the slasher film. As we know it today and its humble beginnings, any conversation about Black Christmas um, usually involves like whether or not it's the first slasher movie, quote unquote, or Halloween, maybe the first slasher movie, who influenced who, so on and so forth. Obviously, Black Christmas came out before Halloween. So, um, I mean, it's safe to say that Halloween was influenced by this one, but yes, mainstream slasher movies really didn't get, you know, into their heyday until like the later seventies and early to mid eighties. Right. Yeah. And there's obviously a, a whole line of, you know, progression between these films and what led to another. I think ultimately we have to stop and look at some of Hitchcock's work first. Sure. 
as far as slashers go, right? I mean, like, we have things like like Psycho, um, and uh, the year that that was made escapes me right now. 1960. 1960, yeah. Right, and so, like, we have that, which is completely different than most slasher movies that we see, you know, in the, the 80s or mid-80s. But to me, Black Christmas has a look and feel of, like, a true slasher movie, right? We get, like, yes. POV styles of... of shot from a killer's perspective you know they they have a higher body count than things like psycho does sure um and this is something that you know we really hadn't seen in film previously or you know maybe we did yeah and to your point like i i know that it's spoken of as like the original slasher by some people or at least to me like a precursor of the classic you know slasher template formula or even the the, the look and feel like you just mentioned right it's got that pov it's got like uh the the similar pacing the ramping up the of the thing basically between you know a kill there's a ramp up of you know stalking and then another kill etc cetera, etc cetera. In, in a way black christmas was kind of uh bringing all those things together as a kind of a jumping off point into the the golden age of slashers, I would say. I'm really glad that you brought up Psycho because I think that like we had that whole discussion when we covered, you know, we had some conversations about Alfred Hitchcock, about, you know, how he was influenced by Giallo and Giallo was kind of influenced by him. And they had this like interesting creative back and forth, right? So I think like the classic slasher kind of evolved from that interplay between like the Italian Giallo films as well as like the American and British takes on the genre referred to then as like the psychological thrillers, right? The early ones, not only including Psycho, but also Peeping Tom, right? Both released in 1960. And I think it can be argued that uh, both of these can be traced back to like films like 13 Women from 1932 about a sorority getting picked off by a peer who crosses off their faces in a yearbook like in 1980s Prom Night or even 1981's Graduation Day. What? That movie was in 1932? I haven't even heard yes. of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And then, of course, The Spiral Staircase in 1946 is about a woman trying to survive black glove killers yes, and features yeah, one yeah. of the earliest uses of jump scares ever. Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians was made into a film in 1945 called And Then There Were None, about a group of people who are killed one by one on an isolated island. And of course, House of Wax in 1953 and a slew of other films in the 50s also incorporated Agatha Christie's themes. So it's like it's a, it, you can trace this kind of evolution is really fascinating. But it also depends on how you define slashers in general right generally you'd say it's like a horror film involving a psychopath stalking and murdering a group of people usually you know using bladed tools right however uh i, I was just reading a, a more specific like psychological definition and I, I i feel like it's a little too specific let me know what you think of it okay Slasher films adhere to a specific formula. A past wrongful action causes severe trauma that is reinforced by a commemoration or anniversary that reactivates or re-inspires the killer. Built around a stalk and murder sequences, the films drawn upon the audience's feelings of catharsis, recreation, and displacement as related to sexual pleasure. Now see, to me, that is the quintessential definition of a slasher movie. That's like word, like, I feel like that really fits like Halloween, but for for like this movie where those origins of a killer, you know, are less cyclical, or at least it's very ambiguous or not just not told to us, well, yeah, it doesn't fit as well. I mean, I think it's implied, right? I think that, I mean, through the obscene phone calls, we sort of can sort of piece together a history, even though we don't know the actual events that happened, right? Yeah. Like this, this killer, this caller had um, something happened to him in his past and something has reinvigorated it. And he is here in this sorority house picking off these women one by one. I love that definition of a slasher, actually. I think that it's quintessentially what a slasher is. And that's how I define slasher movies. I look at things like Psycho and I don't really fit it into the slasher subgenre at all. And you would be right to do so, yeah. And I, in lots of Jolly, I, I also don't fit into the slasher subgenre. I think that, I think that slashers owe a lot to 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 Gialli films, based upon their look, right, and their style, especially like through kills, but. They're definitely like the grandparents, you know, but they evolved into their very own thing, you know? Yes. And like, yes, completely 100% agree that, you know, while we can trace back evolution and we can see all the influences there, they, they definitely created their own, you know, persona, per se. 
I like to think of Black Christmas as a kind of bridge between the influencers of the 30s through the 60s and then the schlassics of the 70s and 80s. It seems like it's like one of the first that just really brought everything together. I don't think it's solely responsible for everything following it, but I but I do think it's definitely a major milestone in the evolution of the slashers. Like would Halloween exist as it did when it was released had there not been a Black Christmas? I don't know. And I'm not sure that many people could answer that question with confidence, but I'm tempted to say no. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say no as well, because I I think that I, I read somewhere offhand that um, like Carpenter was a fan of Black Christmas and he had a conversation with Bob Clark and he asked him, like, what would a sequel to Black Christmas look like? Or it was, it was the other way around. I, I can't even remember. This is like offhand shit. And Carpenter was like, well, I think that maybe that killer would escape and start murdering people on Halloween. And that would be the next sequels because it was another holiday or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and right? that's actually going to show up in my fun facts. Oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, as far as like the, the subgenre itself, um, people, you know, scholars are actually paying attention to this and they've divided it into like the three major eras, right? The classical, which is like 1974 to 1993, like Black Christmas and Halloween. And then like the self reference. 1994 to 2000 like scream where they get a little bit meta Mm -hmm. and then the neo slasher cycle like 2000 and on which i like to think might include more inventive creations like it follows and you know i think as as and you're right i think that it follows is a slasher movie and I, i i love these classifications of of slashers i mean i have heard the term like golden age of slashers a lot when like reading about horror films and i mean i've read like i've read carol clover's book Men, Women, and Chainsaw, right? And I, I, there's been a lot of study on slasher and, and its effects on culture and things like that. But um, I think that at its heart, I mean, as, as slashers grow and continue, they start to get away from what I would consider to be a slasher. Like, I at least a golden age slasher. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, I, I have a hard time adding supernatural elements to slasher films. Like, I just don't care for it. As much as I love A Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, like, it's kind of hard for me to place that in the same subgenre as slashers, right? Well, it kind of fits. It, it fits that definition. And uh, included in the great slashers is like Phantasm. And, you know, and that is a super fantastical movie, too. So, I mean, there's a lot to be said about slashers in general. And um, I think that this is a topic that we'll probably be talking about again in other episodes because I for sure slashers are a huge part of what made horror so popular and profitable throughout our generation, for sure. Right. One interesting thing to me about Black Christmas and you know, its gift to the subgenre is it actually doesn't really follow some of the rules that those later films got kind of self-referential and meta about, right? Like one of the uh, the things is like the virgin dies uh, last, you uh-huh. know, and here the virgin dies first. Yes. <laughs> and the killer remains unknown. In that case, it still has that tie back to kind of giallo, which is uh-huh. interesting to me. Uh, yeah. So let's, talk about characters in black christmas for a little bit then because i mean as far as like horror movies go i especially slashers i think that we have a dearth of like well-rounded well-formed characters right you know this particular movie has all that stuff in spades right so we have a lot of really well-formed characters you know women being portrayed incredibly well i feel i think the acting in this movie is is actually very very good for a horror movie yeah, I actually can. Now that you mention it, I can actually see those like four archetypes from Cabin in the Woods, uh-huh. you know, like the um, the lover and the jock, you know, the athlete or whatever. And then uh, the virgin, you know, and like, I guess the nerd or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, like I you can say that like some of these characters, if we're talking about archetypes. Right. So we have like the virgin, which would be Claire Harrison. Right. She's she barely drinks. She doesn't. We don't know if she's having sex or not. She has sexual, you know, innuendous posters on her wall and whatnot. But she's she is quick to call out people's actions and comments and, you know, the way they carry on. And so she's very definitely, you know, the virginal character. And then we have someone like uh, Phyllis, who is kind of like a mother. She's wholehearted and, you know, like the, a, a giver kind of person. Right. Yeah. And then we have Barb, who would play essentially like the bitch. 
right? The lover, yeah. Yeah, and so, and she's like this weird, like, alpha female kind of character who is great. Feminist. Yeah, and then we have Jess, right, who sort of embodies everything about, you know, what we love about the final girl, but she is a flawed character in many ways. Like, she's certainly not a virgin, right? And through these characters, they're able to tell these stories like like the feminist aspect of Barb or the abortion story of Jess. You know, it's very interesting to me because there's moral points made in some of these later Golden Age uh, slashers mm-hmm. where they are not made here. Exactly. Uh, which I really enjoyed that part of it because it makes it age very, very well. I have to agree 100%. I think that, I mean... In 1974, we're coming off of, you know, feminist movement, right? And people's reaction to it. And I think a lot of times in horror movies, we see sort of, you know, the opposite reaction to things. So, like, if people are having sex rampantly, then people who are having sex in horror movies are going to get killed, right? This movie's kind of different these people are not yeah. getting killed because they're having sex you know i mean and i love that about that time which is at least it seems like a little bit closer to what we had now versus after 74 and into the early 80s and stuff we got that reagan revolution where you know anyone that's doing sex drugs rock and roll is going to be punished for it right and so we have the virgin uh surviving and the people that are actually sexually active you know or have a a feminist voice or something those are the people that are getting killed versus you know the icon of you know american female sainthood or something would survive as a final girl or something now that's kind of an extreme way to put it but compared to this film i feel like that's the case well and even if you're going to go beyond like the archetype of a horror movie i think that None of the characters in Black Christmas act outside of who their character is. I think that you can look at someone like Barb and, you know, say, you know, she's just drunk or she's acting this way or whatever. But she I mean, there's there's a whole like sort of hidden or alluded to backstory as to why she acts this way. I think that you can look at this movie psychologically and sort of piece together why these characters are doing what they're doing. Yeah. At the particular don't time. Feed us any of that, which I exactly. love. Exactly. Yeah. Know? I mean, so like Barb has this whole conversation with her mom on the phone about how she's not going to be with her family during Christmas, right? She calls her mom like a gold-plated whore or something like that. And like, you know, I mean, you could totally see why, you know, she acts the way that she does, right? I think later on when she goes on her drunken tirade about, you know, whether or not the other sisters or even Claire's father blame her for the disappearance of Claire, but you can look at like earlier things she went to the police station to help them find her. Right. I mean, like she's, she may be a bitch, but she's a bitch with a heart of gold and fellatio three, eight, nine. That's <laughs> <laughs> a new exchange. Yeah. Honey. Uh, what were some of your favorite moments of this film? So I love being scared. Right. I think that I, obviously we wouldn't have a podcast about horror movies if, you know, we didn't. And I find this movie to be incredibly unsettling and and scary every time that I watch it. And I think in large part, it's due to some of these phone calls, right? Yeah. And so that very first phone call that happens within like the first five minutes of this movie is some of the most unsettling moments like in, in horror movie like history. I Every time that I watch it, I am just like terrified, unnerved, very uneasy. And I mean, it just, it just scares me to death. Hello? 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 Hey, quiet! It's him again! The Mona! No, Claire, that's the Mormon Tabernacle Choir doing their annual obscene phone call. (laughs) 
Listen, you pervert, why don't you go over to Lamb Kai? They could use a little of this. Oh, why don't you go find a wall socket and stick your tongue in it? That'll give you a charge. I'll stick my tongue up your pretty pussy. You fucking creep! I'm going to kill you. So that actually kind of made me want to go and see like some of the other films that have been made based off this urban legend, right? Some a little bit closer to the source material per se, like when a stranger calls with Carol Kane, you know, answering that phone. And it's very, very tight with the original urban legend. And someone actually has made that into a short film, basically edited that whole thing down just to the Carol Kane moments at the beginning. Oh really? Cause that's the yeah. best parts of that movie. Yes. And it was great. I watched the whole thing after I, I uh, finished watching black Christmas and I was like, man, this is amazing. I love Carol Kane. <laughs> I mean, really I do. I love her as Champagne. well. Champagne. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, wait, the, no. Chardonnay. I mean, th- that movie aside, she is a national treasure. You have to send me that link though, because I mean, I, I like that movie a lot. I like it just because of that first little section, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's great. But even that doesn't hold a candle to the obscenity that's coming out of the phone in this particular movie, right? Yeah, it just reminded me so much of student bodies. They zoom in on the, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the, the receiver. And it's like, I kept expecting like, like this come white to come liquid out of to come with, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or a tongue, like in like um, Nightmare on Elm Street or something. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Like I, I, I watched this. I rewatched this last night. I have seen Black Christmas a lot. You know, I, uh, I first watched it when I was a an older teenager. I had to have been about seventeen or eighteen years old, and I had always like seen the video at work. I mean, I worked at video stores, and it was always like it looked really old. You know, it's just like a picture of a wreath with a girl's face in plastic in it, right? And I just you know never picked it up. When you had you juxtapose that with something like Silent Night, Deadly Night, which is like Santa Claus's arm coming out of a chimney holding an axe. You know, that's <laughs> that's what I would rent. Um, but finally I watched Black Christmas and I have almost watched it every year at Christmas time since then. Like it's just yeah. part, it's part of my Christmas traditions. Um, but that phone call is just like unnerving and crazy. And to me, I don't know. It's kind of like, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, you can just, you can watch the, just that one phone call clip on YouTube, right? But it's kind of like a cross between the Tasmanian devil and some like weird pervert, like calling them. <laughs> He's like, cunt, you know, and it's just, but it's, yeah, contextually, it's bizarre and it looks scary. To me, that part wasn't as scary. It was tense, but, you know, I'd seen it, you know, I have, I have the benefit of watching you know, scream and student bodies and all these other like things surrounding a phone that have come from this in a way, right. That have evolved from this. And so I kind of watch it in a reverse way, you know, knowing that, you know, this is kind of where it's owed, but also kind of having experienced that a little bit already. To me, the most visceral part of the film is kind of the end. Like I watched this with my boyfriend, Matt, and he kind of started falling asleep, but he woke up kind of in that final kind of fourth of the movie, you know, kind of third or fourth act where the killer is just going down and killing Barb. There's kind of a final chase and you see his eye through the crack of the door. And that is a famous scene uh, for this film. And that was, it's incredibly well done. And it really gets like modern film level of tense and kind of real at the end there, you know, as you know, she sees him and is trying to escape and everything. And it, and it was uh, pretty visceral. And I, and I was uh, kind of surprised at that for a 1974 film, given everything that's come come after that. And so uh, I really appreciated that. And uh, Matt, that's what woke Matt up too, is that he was like, wow, this is, you know, this is legit horror, you know? So no, it, it really worked well. And um, it obviously inspired a lot of other uh, movies. I'm glad you say that because I, I really do. When I, whenever I watch this movie, you know, and I, I pretty much just watch it once a year. And, um, but every time that I watch it, I am surprised at like how masterfully this movie was made right i mean it has a lot of tension and 
it it does feel like a modern horror movie to me a lot of the times. Yes. Um, I know what makes me sad is that I know that a lot of people sort of detract from this movie because they think that it's it's boring in the middle, right? Like it starts off strong, has a middle, and then you know ends strongly. And well, it um, kind of gets a little cyclical in the middle. And I think that's what they're referring to. You know, it has a pace that goes pretty fast and then it kind of slows down in the circle with this offshoot with a little girl who may or may not be a victim of this killer, you know, and it kind of just kind of drags its feet a little bit before it brings it home. And boy, does it bring it home. You know, it's just about a 15 minute, 20 minute lull. But you you wouldn't really recognize that, I think, cognitively, consciously until after you've seen it. On Matt's part, I don't think he was thinking about it. He was just falling asleep. <laughs> Even during those scenes where they're looking for that missing girl, like I, I feel that sort of ratchets up tension quite a bit, you know? And it sort of culminates in that that scream, right? That scream of the person who finds that little girl's body. Yeah. And it's just shrieking and the mother like jumping out of the car. I mean, I just this movie works on on a lot of levels, right? And I mean a lot of it has to do with tension and and the characters right and i yeah we can talk all night long about how how these characters you know are portrayed and whatnot but um this movie is super progressive right yeah even you say we we, we see it as a sort of a modern looking movie but well, both technically and thematically right i mean yeah. you could almost make this film shot for shot today you know but yeah we've 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 touched on you know the feminist aspect of it the fact that they're not, they're making moral judgments on some of these things um it's an interesting time just like we were talking about cruising right it's it was an interesting time to see these films as like a time capsule before things got super conservative for a good like 10 15 years there was such a sharp turn in slasher movies essentially at, like right after this if you compare black christmas to halloween and the characters that are in them right they're just night and day different. And then people took the success of Halloween and just continued on with that. And so we have all these characters, female characters mostly, who are incredibly vapid, you know, from Halloween on. And yeah. everything is very moralistic, right? But in Black Christmas, we have smart and, you know, women who are, you know, they they have their own destinies in mind and what they want to do with their lives and they are in college to learn and to move on and this is to me like some of the last times that we get to see something like this in in slasher movies right I yeah mean, we get to see intelligent characters in horror movies all the time but slashers clearly have you know the final girl who's like studious and virginal and the rest are all just sex crazed morons for the most part yeah i mean even barb as drunk as she gets like makes good points you know and i think that that character that character alone in this movie yeah in this movie no one was just like the one-eyed person in the kingdom of the blind right everyone could see and think and, and know what was going on yeah i mean and i think it's even more progressive than we're just talking about too i think that you know years from now people will look back at black christmas and sort of like see this as a really feminist movie right you know and you know yeah. maybe, maybe we'll talk about a little bit more about that like toward the end of our conversations when we asked our questions right but i i know that this movie sort of like helped create the look and feel of a slasher as we know it today yeah and i know that we've said this and we've we've kind of gone back and forth on this but it does really feel like a slasher to me especially with the use of the floating or the handheld camera as the point of view eye of the killer and i, I don't think many other films had done this to this point it might be like only the second one to have done it i think the first one was peeping tom yeah right and um although for this film the the camera was actually not like handheld so much as it was like strapped to the cameraman's shoulder so he could climb up the ladder or down the stairs without injuring himself um so i i, I don't know I, f I feel like that's a really interesting point because it does it really really well and i just i i remember watching it before i'd done my research and i was like oh this is that trope where you can actually like see it and I, you know we've seen it at student bodies and halloween and and it wasn't really popularized until halloween but it was interesting because it is so well done here also in like the look and the feel 
I want to I want to talk a little bit about the music, right? Which was done by Carl uh, Zitterer, who used forks and combs and knives on the strings of the piano to warp the sound of the keys in order to get that sound. And he would then like distort the sound even more by recording it sound onto an audio tape and making the sound slower. So it really like feels like it like it sounds like a slasher to me, like a modern slasher in a way with those like. Um, piano chords, although it would go into more of a melodious thing a little early on and kind of theatrical in some places, uh, which I think is a little bit, you know, dissonant to like how modern audiences like their music in horror movies. It's yeah. a little bit early, uh, a little bit theatrical. As soon as something bad's going to happen, it really tipped you off. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus I think more modern is a little bit more subtle in some cases. But generally speaking, I really enjoyed the music and how it was done. It was very unique. Yeah. I mean, I can remember like some of the, um, I mean, I can't even describe it, you know, but if you're talking about the, the things that he used on piano strings, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Cause that's what it sounds like, you know, yeah. it's fascinating and, and brilliant really. I don't And know. what's interesting is of course they destroy a piano in this film. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if they recorded some of that too. Yeah, I don't. Oh. When he destroyed that piano, the whole time I was just thinking, how much does that fucking instrument cost? I was just like, really? I hope they built something that looked like a piano, and like smashed the shit out of it. Because if someone smashed a grand piano like that, I would just like cry. I don't. I know. I was. I was. Yeah. I hated watching him do that. But you know, I guess he went on to be an astronaut. <laughs> well, I think he was an astronaut before this. <laughs> so. We've talked a lot about the women in this movie. What do you think about the men? I don't have a problem with how they're portrayed. They seem like they're well-adjusted people too. Even Peter, who had the problem with the abortion and stuff. That's not how, how you might expect someone to react. Yeah. Uh, he was a little bit sexist in his approach. But, you know, I do believe that, you know, I do believe, you know, in a woman's right, you know, innate and intrinsic right to control her own body. But at the same time, if you're in a relationship with someone you know, I feel like a conversation should happen, <laughs> you know, as far as a decision. But um, there's just a tiny little bit of gray area there. But his you'll be sorry was a little bit of a threat to me. And oh, that yeah. was wrong. Uh, of course, it was probably the worst night of his life. And he finds out he's going to have a kid and then that she's going to essentially abort it. And then also he has basically his dissertation after being there for six years and he utterly fails it, you know. Um, and so he's basically you know what his relationship a potential child and his career is basically over in one night i feel like he handled it like a champ and he still at the end of the night tried to help her yeah and you know and unfortunately he was you know misread as a killer or whatever and, and he dies for it you know if if the movie is making any kind of moral judgment you know it might be on him you know anti-feminist and well, I think too that I mean, like a lot of the reactions from the cops is like you know, like well, I'm sure she just ran off with a boyfriend or things like that. I mean, unfortunately, that is exactly what life was like back then, right? Like that was the first conclusion they made. I mean, oh, a college girl is missing. Well, I'm sure she's off just hooking up with someone or doing something that she shouldn't be doing, right? Mm-hmm. We mentioned earlier that um, Black Christmas is sort of loosely based on some real life murders that happened in Montreal, you know, years. Before beforehand and you know they are it's um sort of loosely based on this like serial rapist slash murderer and he did some really terrible things to women like he would like mutilate breasts with his teeth and things like that and so they were drawing from some really crazy material and um i don't know i mean like sometimes when you look at real life versus what you see in a horror movie, you have to you know, find your common ground, right? And when I watch movies from this particular era, I'm always like flabbergasted at how like people are being treated when they report crimes, especially women or whatever. But I mean, do you think that it's really any different today? Do you think that people go to the cops and be like, well, maybe let's just wait and see if they come back home or something like well, that? Well, I mean, yeah, I believe that they're – at least in, you know, the colloquial layman understanding is that there has to be like 12 hours or something. Yeah. I mean, you could still file a report or whatever, but I don't think there's like a whole manhunt until, you know, there's reason. Well, I have some fun facts for you. I love these. So the first one is that not only was this kind of a, a part where a part of the beginning of the golden age of slashers, right? This is also part of 
a holiday horror exploitation string, right? So that includes Home for the Holidays, uh, which is a tea movie, TV movie in 1972, All Through the House, which was actually part of the Tales from the Crypt anthology from 1972, starring none other than Joan Collins, of Yay, course. Yay, I love that. <laughs> and uh, Silent Night, Bloody Night, which came out, of course, the year before that we mentioned in 1973. And I'm so glad that it started a trend. I really do love holiday horror movies. I mean, like, <laughs> especially Christmas horror movies, but any holiday will do in a pinch. But like Christmas horror movies, I just love them. Mm-hmm. Eventually, we're going to have to do a top 10. So... So this film has had many titles, obviously, Black Christmas in Canada, Silent Night, Evil Night for its original release in the U.S. Uh, Of course, the original title was um, Stop Me. And for his television debut, they named it Stranger in the House for some reason. Okay. Yeah. So it's had like four titles. (laughs) Black Christmas just works the best. Come on. Yeah. So two weeks prior to his television premiere in 1978, the Chi Omega sorority house on the campus of Florida state university in Tallahassee was the scene of a double murder in which two Chi Omega sisters asleep in their beds were bludgeoned to death. The killer then went onto a nearby room in the sorority house and violently attacked two more sleeping co-eds who survived. The killer was, of course, later identified as Ted Bundy, who was executed for this and other homicides on January 24th, 1989. And due to this, the network gave Florida and a number of other states the option to show Doc Savage, the man of bronze, instead. (laughs) I knew that it causes controversy. I didn't know that they were showing that instead of it. I wonder (laughs) if they actually did. In 1986, Olivia Hussey met producers for the film Roxanne for 1987. Since they were interested in casting her for the title role, Roxanne co-star Steve Martin met her and said, Oh my God, Olivia, you were in one of my all-time favorite films. She was thinking this was Romeo and Juliet since she played Juliet in 1968. Uh, However, Olivia was surprised to find out that it was actually Black Christmas. Martin claimed that he had seen it around 27 times. I actually had heard this before too because she uh, she's one of the talking heads on Bravo's um, hundred scariest moments series they did, and she tells this story right. I didn't know that she was up for that role in Roxanne, which I love that movie quite a bit. Do you like that movie? I haven't seen it. <gasps> no, that's bullshit, Roxanne. <laughs> It's like Cyrano de Bergerac. It's so good. It's Daryl Hannah eventually took that role, but oh, okay. now I'm like picturing Olivia Hussey in that role, and it's uh, it's different in my mind. Oh, it's funny though, for such a comedic man to see Black Christmas 27 times. It's mm, yeah, says something about him. The audio for the disturbing phone calls was performed by multiple actors, including actor Nick Mancuso and director Bob Clark himself. Mancuso stated in an interview that he stood on his head during the recording sessions to compress his thorax and make his voice sound even more demented. What the fuck, really? Yeah. (laughs) That's fucking commitment. And boy, does it. Yeah. A novelization of the film was published in 1976, which offered more insight into the characters and more plot development. The book is rare, however, as it has since gone out of print. So, listeners, if any of you have access to this, let us know. And, uh, Chris, if you're looking for a Christmas gift for me, a black Christmas gift, yes, that would, that would be the one to find. <laughs> okay. Bob Clark stated in an interview that he couldn't recall whose eye was used for that famous shock scene when Jess sees Billy staring at her from behind the door. It was possible uh, that it was Albert J. Dunk, the camera operator who played uh, Billy during some of the murder scenes, but it has never been confirmed just who uh, whose staring eye has given countless viewers nightmares for all these years. Mm-hmm. After seeing the ending of the film, studio executives asked director Bob Clark to change the ending. The proposed idea was to have the cops leaving Jess alone with Chris, Claire's boyfriend. She wakes up and he says, Agnes, don't tell them what we've did. And then he kills her. However, Clark refused and insisted that the ending be ambiguous. So we thought that like when Matt and I were watching this, that based on the hair of the guy like stabbing the unicorn into Margot Kidder, that it was Chris yeah. uh, based on his hair. Although the movie was really working hard to make sure that you thought it was Peter, you know, but I thought that was very interesting that it was almost as if like the studio expected that was what was intended. And it seems based on the response that was intended as well, that it was Chris all along. But I'd rather just continue thinking that it's ambiguous that we still don't know who that killer is. 
I mean, I like that too. I really enjoy an unhappy ending in a movie, right? <laughs> I don't. I mean, it doesn't. Oh, at all first, have to... I was angry. I was. I was actually really Were you angry. Really? Yeah, like I was like, it better not end like this. Oh my god! And then, but it leaves you with it, right? It leaves you with it. It slowly pans out from the house as after you've seen the killer kind of come down. And I was like, we have to see what happens. They're going to come back. They're going to realize something's off, you know, but no, they zoom out and then you have that phone call. And I just got more and more okay with it because of the way it was filmed and edited. Right. And so I actually really enjoyed that. And the more I thought about it, the more I enjoyed it and less angry I became. And now I actually love it. And the same thing happened to Matt. So I think that's just one of those miracles of directing and editing where you know you can see that as a as an artistic creative choice and you can really just respect it and see what they were going for that the point of the movie is not that the good guy wins the bad guy loses you know that's not the point of the film right no i mean the point of this movie is that that there's you know someone hiding in a house killing all these women or whatever and i mean it's i love the end of this movie i'm i'm so glad that nothing was changed I I even like the fact that she murders Peter, right? Or I can't say murder. She defends herself, right? She kills Peter thinking that he's the killer. I mean, there's so many things going through her head at that particular moment. I think, and I like I said earlier, I think that people are going to look back on Black Christmas and sort of like see it differently than they do now even. I think it's eventually going to be a really good piece of like horror cinema and and even crime cinema really, but an ambiguous ending to me is fantastic. I know that you can leave things open to a sequel, but to me like that 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 ambiguous ending is just the end. I have one last one. Okay. There were several attempts over the years to produce a sequel for the film. However, Halloween from 1978 was originally conceived as a sequel to this film by John Carpenter, who was a fan of this film before a project became a standalone film. So, yeah, I have read like horror legend that says that Carpenter went to Bob Clark and said, I was a fan of your movie. What do you think a sequel would look like or something like that? And he sort of like took that and ran with it. And then Halloween was born. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And became, you know, the ultimate like, you know, successor to this movie and creator of what is like the slasher subgenre, right? And I was thinking about that. I was like, could this film, could you actually say this film is like a prequel to Halloween? But you really can't because Michael Myers has his own Backstory. background. He's already in asylum, all that stuff. It wouldn't, he wasn't going by Billy. He wasn't talking to himself. You know, he was made into this, um, you know, silent icon, right? So it just uh, shifted a little bit. Well, and one of the things that I like most about Black Christmas is that there is a lack of backstory. Right. I think I mean, we don't it doesn't matter why this guy is killing people. He's just doing it right. You d- don't ask questions. Suspend your disbelief and watch the movie. We have a crazy mm-hmm. person in an attic coming down, killing people and making phone calls. Right. It's scary. Uh, Black Christmas has left a, a legacy behind it um, more so than what we've already talked about. It spawned a remake in like 2006, I think. And um, a now lot of people, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of people decried that remake a lot. I went to go see it on Christmas Day when it was released in 2006, and I like it quite a bit. It's very, very different from this particular movie. We get the backstory of Billy, right? And um, it's violent, very gory, kind of shocking. But I'm, I'm. It's just a completely different movie, and I like it for what it is. In fact, I I watch it not quite as often as Black Christmas, but every couple of years I'll pop it in, like right after I've watched the original. Okay, it, it's got Michelle Trachtenberg in it, Lacey Chabert, like all those you know, twenty tens actresses or whatever, and it's it's a good movie. It's incredibly gory. I mean, there's somebody making cookies with cookie cutters out of human skin in it. Oh, so yeah, it's um. It may not be for everybody, but it sounds if, like it was kind of made around that time with the splat pack stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely like square in the like the hostile know, era, you know? Right. The new one is coming out this December. In fact, by the time this podcast comes out, it will have already been released. It's coming out on Friday the 13th in December. And if you are interested in watching this film, do not watch the trailer. Please don't. Yes. <laughs> if you have not seen the new Black Christmas already, the new, new Black Christmas, don't watch the trailer. It will spoil everything. I think. I mean, I haven't seen it yet, obviously. We're recording this now, but... Yeah, we both watched the trailer. He told me a long time ago not to watch it. I forgot he told me not to. I watched it. It's basically the whole movie. It feels like it. And I'm just like, 
no, now I don't feel like I need to see this movie. But you're going to see it. I think whenever you come visit Texas from Boston, maybe we should go see Black Christmas. Maybe so. <laughs> I do miss my Alamo Draft House. There you go. And then, have you seen the other remake, right? 2006 remake? No. I want you to watch that too. If I mean, if you if we're not going to watch it together, then we have to do a flashback of it or something like that for Patreon because I think this is something you need to watch. Fair enough. Well, here at the Film Flamers, after we've discussed a movie, we like to ask a series of questions, and Black Christmas shall be no different. So the first question is: Is Black Christmas a horror movie? <laughs> I don't, I don't think it is, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's really not. It's more of a period yeah. piece comedy. No, I mean, it's really kind of a prequel to the next film he made, which was A Christmas Story. <laughs> yeah, why isn't that a fun fact, actually? Or is it just quite common knowledge? I feel like I it's common knowledge, but yeah. hey, here you go. No, obviously, it's a horror movie, right? Uh, you know, it's not even adjacent. It's a, it's a classic slasher. So yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's yes, no debate is. here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 we we cannot question whether or not this is a horror movie. I think the question of where it fits into canon, right, and what its legacy is, and I I love the debate about like whether or not it's the first like quote unquote slasher movie. I think this is really where people talk about Black Christmas, right? Yeah, but and we definitely beat that horse dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nay. Uh, secondly, were you scared while watching Black Christmas? Uh, no, but I was tense. Definitely. Uh, phone call, tense. And then that last kind of um, hurrah of the killer versus the quote unquote final girl who is probably dead um, five minutes after the credits roll. I, you know, that was pretty tense for me, too. I don't I don't think I got scared. No, but I don't really get scared in movies, really. There are some movies that scare me every time that I watch them, right? And Black Christmas is one of them. Another one is Halloween, right? No matter how many times I see these movies and I know what's coming around the corner, I still get frightened. I think that the phone call really scares me quite a bit at the beginning. His eye through the door frame, right? Just scares me. All these classic shots are things that I know are there. Every time, every time I see them, I'm like, like struck by them. <laughs> see, I was just like, oh my god, that's a cool shot, <laughs> and I was like, that's tense, you know. Versus like anything that kind of builds tension slowly and then executes. Generally, that's what scares me. It's that creeping dread. You know, there's some things like Oculus or white noise or some things that really do that better than others for me personally. And that's my brand of scared versus, you know, some like, and I know that's a little out there compared to most people, I think. Well, and I do get scared very easily. Like, I fully admit that. Right. But I mean, this is just one of those movies that I, I get scared Every time that I watch it, I get lost in the movie every time I watch it. And I think it's super effective as it a horror movie. I just just love it. And lastly, and some would say more importantly, if they weren't in 1974, who is the hottest guy in Black Christmas? Yeah, <laughs> it's obviously Chris. Yes, I mean, I first of all, yes, he's the hottest guy. But I would dispense with all of that just to have the coat that he wears in this movie. Oh my god, I was like, that is a pimp coat. I fucking have to have that coat. <laughs> you just want a fur coat in general. I do. I really do just want a fur coat. But I like, I like that one a lot. If I could have that fur, coat, and by fur he means for uh, faux fur. No, I don't. For all you. Okay. Um, <laughs> Hey, I mean, no offense to, you know, you know, I'm not going to go there. Fuck it. If I could just have that fur coat with a novelization of Black Christmas tucked inside the pocket as a gift, <laughs> I think that I would just like be the happiest fucking queer on Halloween. You have no idea. Halloween. <laughs> Christmas. Fuck me. Anyway, yeah, he was he's like the only really attractive guy in this movie, I guess. Well, right? uh, the guy from... Uh, what Kieran Dulia or whatever his name was, uh, the guy from 2001: A Space Odyssey. Uh, he's pretty hot, but they had him not looking hot in this movie with his haircut. Yeah, that whatever, haircut but... was god awful. Like, yeah, no, no he's uh, 
no, he's an attractive man, but uh, in this in this film, I have to say, I mean, and John Saxon has some like daddy qualities to him, but he's got like some like <laughs> caterpillar eyeballs or something like eyeball <laughs> caterpillar eyelashes. Just don't look up that that actor that played Chris. Just don't look up what he looks like now. Oh shit! Now I have to. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, go to the wiki. Okay. He doesn't look that bad. Art Hingle, Art Hindle at the 2014 CFC annual barbecue. Huh? <laughs> Well, he's just an old man. It's like, he's still an actor old man, though. Although he looks very confused in that photo. Well, guys, I think that about wraps up our Black Christmas extravaganza. Stay tuned for Christmas when we'll be dropping an extra special surprise just for you. And after that, we'll be releasing our top 10 slashers to wrap up 2019 and bring us into 2020. That's right. And in January, we are going to start the year off by covering The Invitation. Karen Kusama's modern classic. I like this movie a lot. We'll be inviting you into the new year with a dinner party. So look for your invitation in January. (laughs) Also, as it's the end of the year, look forward in January for our 2019 year in review. We'll be talking about all the horror movies that we loved in 2019, some of the good performances, maybe some of the ones that we didn't like so much, and looking forward to what's going to come up in 2020. That's right. And 2019 was a hell of a year for horror. So we're really looking forward to that. Hell yes. And as always, if you have any comments about Black Christmas, our conversation about it, you can find us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or even better, call us on our hotline at 972-666-7733. And we'll put your voice on Shooting the Flames and respond to you right there. And we have hours and hours of bonus content and more coming out in December on patreon.com slash the film flamers. So go over there and check that out. That's right. And on Patreon, we are releasing our flamers flashback for the lion in winter. My favorite Christmas movie. (laughs) And a first watch for me. So I'm looking forward to watching it. Is it really a Christmas movie? Yeah. They're holding Christmas court in France. (laughs) well robert i'm a little bit christmased out i've been drinking my wassail (laughs) and i've been talking about black christmas and uh i think i need to take a little rest before i actually experience the real christmas well guys let's go off into our christmas slumbers then and have some sweet sweet dreams. dreams My cat is still like screaming in the background. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh my god. Uh, uh.